0: Carol started laughing when the other people in right field yelled, Left field sucks. Left field sucks.
1: Jenny bought some Cracker Jack and got a water soluble tattoo
0: of a bumblebee. Put it on her knee. Carol sighed, This game is dull, then looked around the stands for her ideal man. Stared at a well-tanned, blonde-haired fella As Pete Rose stole home plate to tie the score Three straight singles sent the pitcher packing Then Jenny noticed her high-scoring was gone for nine minutes all of a 13th row search
1: till she said oh, sorry it's in the car hello and welcome to episode 1536 of effectively wild a fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our patreon supporters i'm meg rowley of fangraphs and i'm joined as always by ben limberg of the ringer ben how are you
2: I'm doing very well because this is one of those days when I'm really happy to have the show <laughs> because yeah. it gives us the excuse to talk to people whose work has brought us a lot of joy and to have them talk to each other. So we've got a fun conversation planned for today.
1: We do. We have a fun conversation. We will spend some of that conversation being wistful about baseball. Yes. And <laughs> I I was doing some writing, I know, shocking kind of events, a <laughs> development <laughs> That has not made itself known in quite a while. (laughs) And as uh, in the course of that, I had occasion to go back and watch part of like just like the least consequential parts. I want to be very clear, the least consequential parts of the Red Sox Yankees series in London last Uh summer. And I don't know if you recall the the first game of that series that they played where-
2: Yes, that was scored, a wild series. Yeah, they scored <laughs> the roughly
1: 7,000 runs uh, mm-hmm. between them and uh, the game in question. Well, I recall it starting when I was eating breakfast because, you know, funny time zones and I live in Pacific time and I had time and occasion to eat breakfast and then- go to the gym and then meet a friend for a beer and some snacks after the gym. And the game was still going on. The game just followed me through that whole day. And uh, I, I remembered that experience of it. And I was listening to, you know all the goofy all the goofy commentary and ins and outs you know bumpers in and out that they were doing during that to remind us that england has a queen and also they play cricket <laughs> they say words funny there are lots of us next to o's we don't know why and gosh i just miss baseball so hard
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah
1: i just really do and i know why we can't have it and that's that's the right choice but man, would be good to mark time in a way that's comprehensible to my brain, so,
2: boy. I agree. Yeah, it's great to have CPBL and KBO and all the other varieties of baseball, but the one that we were weaned on, the one that we're used to with all the people that we know and the teams we're used to rooting for, we miss that one. And as much as we miss watching baseball from afar, we also miss going to games and that communal experience. It's very easy to mock people waxing poetic about the green of the grass and the crack of the bat. And yes, those things are kind of cliches, but they're kind of cliches for a reason. Those things are pretty cool. Cool, and you miss them when they're taken away. And yeah. so we thought that we would devote this episode to remembering what it's like to go to games via three books about going to a game. So this just seems like the the perfect comfort that we can offer right now on a day that the Little League World Series was canceled. I mean, what's more depressing than that? There's no yeah. Little League. That's the saddest possible headline. But there is a genre of baseball book that is devoted to the idea of going to a single game and writing about that single game in some amount of depth. And it's been done in a few different ways and from a few different perspectives. But the most notable entries in this genre are A Day in the Bleachers, which came out in 1955. And that's by Arnold Haino. And then in 1985, Dan Okrant published Nine Innings. And in 2018, Nayer published Powerball and in all of these books the author goes to a game, writes about going to a game, writes about all the players in that game, all the experiences in that game, and make some broader observations about baseball and life and human nature and why we care about sports and how the game has evolved over time. And I have had a chance and reason because of this episode to go back and revisit those books. And we've both been reading A Day in the Bleachers over the past week, and it really is nice to at least remember what it was like and sort of bittersweet, but it brings you back to that moment. And hopefully that moment will be back for us sometime soon but for today we wanted to get all three of those authors together on this call and have them tell us about the experience of writing those books and talk to each other about their experiences. And I thought we had a, a really great conversation that I think we all enjoyed.
1: Yeah, I agree. It was lovely.
2: So we will get right to it. Let's bring in our guests.
1: Left-hander Vic works up and left-hander Don Little ready to go. Here's the pitch to works. Here's a long drive to deep, deep center field. Mays back to the wall. Makes an
0: incredible catch. Tons and fires it in. What a catch by Willie Mays.
2: All right, we are joined now by three prolific writers who have authored about 40 books between them, although we are focusing on just three of those books today, each of which focuses on a single game. So I will introduce our guests in order of seniority. First, we have Arnold Hano a longtime editor and freelance sports writer, novelist, and biographer who has produced dozens of books, including, of course, A Day in the Bleachers, his classic account of Game 1 of the 1954 World Series. Arnold, thank you for joining us. You're perfectly welcome, thank you And next we have Dan Okrent, another long-time, although slightly less long-time, editor, author, and historian Who served as the first public editor of the New York Times and is well-known in baseball circles for inventing rotisserie league baseball And helping bring Bill James to national attention and appearing in Ken Burns Baseball He also wrote Nine Innings, a book about a June 10th, 1982 game between the Brewers and Orioles Hello, Dan
0: Hi, how are you today, Ben?
2: doing well. And last, we welcome Rob Nair, formerly of ESPN and other outlets and currently the host of the Sabercast and the commissioner of the West Coast League, which I believe has not yet canceled its season. Rob is the author or co-author of seven baseball books, including Powerball, about a September 8th, 2017 game between the A's and the Astros. Hello again, Rob. Hello,
3: and it's, as always, a thrill to speak to you, you and Meg. Thanks for having me.
2: Well, we're very happy to have all of you together. And Rob, I'll start with you because your book is the most recent arrival and you wrote it with the other two somewhat in mind. So Powerball came out a little more than 30 years after Nine Innings, which itself came out 30 years after A Day in the Bleachers. But all three are great. And I wonder why you think this genre has such enduring appeal. And what did you want to emulate about Arnold and Dan's books or do differently from them?
3: Well, I could go on for the entire podcast.
2: just answering those two questions,
3: uh, <laughs> which probably would be somewhat rude. So I won't. I will say that I can literally remember exactly where and approximately when I first purchased both Nine Innings and The Day in the Bleachers, and I devoured both books immediately. So they, they have meant a great deal to me for, and by the way, when I say when, we're talking the mid to late 1980s. So uh, these books have both been a part of me for a long time. When my editor came to me and said he wanted to do the Powerball, of course my thoughts immediately turned to A Day in the Bleachers and Nine Innings because I knew them so well. And I loved the idea of being a part of that tradition. And they endure because it's useful every so often for people to get a snapshot of what baseball is actually like, the mechanics of the game at any particular point. Now, you don't we want to do it every year because the mechanics don't change enough. But every 30, 20 or 30 years, absolutely the mechanics of the game. It's the same game, but the way it's played changes. The way we talk about it, write about it changes. So that was a thrill. The One thing I couldn't do was reread the books because I realized that my book, because of the, the, the timing of, of the thing and what my editor was looking for, I couldn't emulate precisely either of these books. And I knew that if I read them again, right when I was starting my book, I would be overwhelmed with feelings of, of inadequacy. So I just sort of let those sit next to me. They were in a shelf next to me the entire time that I wrote, but I didn't reread them because uh-huh. I knew I just it, it wouldn't help me do what I needed to do.
2: And Arnold, you were the pioneer here, and I know you didn't set out to write a book about a game. You went to game one of the 54 World Series as a fan and were inspired to write about it by what you saw. And I wonder if you can tell us what made the concept and tone of your book so unusual at the time and why it didn't immediately find an audience and why a book about a game played long ago has gained a greater audience and a greater appreciation over time.
4: The time is interesting because... uh... The book has now been in print since 1955, and that in itself uh, uh, makes it sort of stand alone, uh, uh, not, not as something better or worse, but just as, a, uh, as, as old, uh, like me. Uh, I'm, I'm 98 now, and, and the book is closing in on me. I never thought of it as, as a possible book until it had been turned down as a possible magazine piece. Uh, I I thought the New Yorker at that time was doing fairly lengthy pieces by Roger Angel and uh, Ring Rodney Jr. Uh, and I thought this might be, they might be interested in this. This, this was after I had sat with the, all my notes and everything else. Uh, uh, and uh, so I, I brought it over to the New Yorker, and a, a young man came down, took it from me. And I said, I'm going to need it back. And he said, yes, I'll bring it back as soon as they finish with it. And about an hour later, he came back with it. And he said, they like it, but it's not for them. And I thought that was a perfectly fair uh, assessment. And I took it home and I said to him, why is it not for them? Why is it uh, hanging around? And then I thought, well, maybe there's something more to it than that. And the more became a book. And uh, just it was just uh, oh I don't know uh, it, it it worked well as a book it didn't work well as a magazine piece and so I, I was happy with it at that point and gave it to my agent Sterling Lord and we proceeded from there.
1: I'm curious how you thought about your depiction of other fans as you were going about writing this. You talk pretty candidly about the Yankees and Dodgers and Phillies fans you've encountered over the course of your experience of baseball to this point, and your opinion of them is unvarnished and not always especially flattering. And I wonder if you worried about how that depiction might make readers perceive your reliability as a narrator, or if you thought that being candid about those perceptions might make you seem more credible because you weren't trying to hide anything, you're clearly honest about your own fandom in in the course of the book. So, how did you grapple with that?
4: I don't know that I grappled with it. I, uh, I think you're making more of it in your own mind than I made it in mine. Uh, <laughs> I, I saw this thing as a as a nice day. Uh, yeah. It began with an argument with my wife and ended up uh, my going home feeling very vindicated. Uh, and in between, there was a ball game, and I don't think I. Gave much of it the literary thought, as you seem to suggest, uh, or 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 academic thought. It it was just it was a day in the bleachers. Me standing on line talking to a fan, and me sitting next to a couple of guys who were playing the the casino and arguing with a woman in a red cap and uh, things like that. It all just it fell into my lap. I, I am a very lucky person. Uh, who else in the world would choose to to uh, pick a game in which me, Willie Mays made a play that is considered the highlight, defensive highlight of, of the entire world of World Series? You know that that's the kind of luck that I have. Uh, I, I went to a ball game a year or so later, sitting in the mezzanine of the Yankee Stadium on October eighth, nineteen fifty six. And Don Lawson pitches his perfect game. Uh, these things just happen to me. So,
2: so I, I don't argue back at them and, and say, yeah, I wonder why I'm doing it. I just let it happen. Fair enough. And when Rob was writing his book about a game that took place in September 2017, he could rewatch the game in high-definition video to his heart's content, I imagine. He could look up the speed and movement of every pitch. He could easily access player stats and everything written about that team and that game. And Arnold, none of that was really available to you when you were writing. And because you hadn't intended to write a book about the game, all you had initially, as I understand it, was your memory and some notes on a newspaper that you had happened to bring to the game and, and jotted down some things. So how did you reconstruct everything that ha- had happened and how did you preserve all of the details of the things that you saw?
4: Well, I cheat a little. Uh, uh, there'd be a, a, a photograph from the newspaper that gave me uh, a new look at Willie Mays making his throw and things like that. And uh, and I, I absorbed all that stuff and, and just, it just stole it. It, it just... It all came to me, my notes in the the New York Times and my notes in the program, they helped. But mainly, I I do have a good memory, and and, uh, at least I did back then. Today I don't have anything that's good about me. Uh, But but, uh, I can can recall seeing Mays making that throw, for instance. He caught the ball. He took a step or two. He whirled. And he threw, and his arm was outstretched. Outstretched. It looked like a a longer arm than he possibly could have had. And that stuck with me. Uh, uh, it was like a a, a Greek throwing a javelin uh, uh, in in an Olympic game or or something like that. And so uh, so th- those 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 pictures became my pictures. And and uh, uh, I just I just you know stole right and left and and used what I saw. Uh, but mainly, mainly, I relied on my memory. That, that's why there's some dull pieces in the book. But uh, the, the sixth, seventh innings, things like that, uh, are just almost glossed over. So I highlighted what I saw, and Willie Mays helped me out in that respect.
1: Dan, unlike Arnold, who went to a World Series game and then wrote a book about it in a few weeks, you chose a regular season game and did extensive research and reporting, so nine innings came out three years after the game you were chronicling was played. Why did you decide to go about it that way, and what were some of the challenges of basing a book on a seemingly less consequential contest?
0: Well, that was sort of the idea behind it. I was very well aware of Arnold's book. I had read it years earlier, uh, and then, of course, looked at it again as I began on this project and the 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 notion that i had i had two notions that would make it different from arnold's book one was could you do this with an ordinary game could you take a typical game rather than one of the most famous games of our era with of course probably the most famous fielding play uh, in baseball history could you just pick a day and write about that experience use that as a, as the experience and then secondarily unlike arnold and i Kind of in retrospect, I re- regret this in a way. I didn't approach it as a fan. I, As you said, Meg, I, was, I spent a year and a half with the two teams that I was writing about before the game was played. And then I talked to the, all the, the participants uh, many times afterward to get their perspectives on what had gone on. And in fact, it, this led to my stopping writing about baseball. I had been writing about baseball mostly for Sports Illustrated, but a few other places inside Sports Magazine up, up to that point. But after writing this book, I realized I could no longer be a fan. I had I had taken something I had loved, and I had vocationalized it. And I kind of wished, you know, wouldn't have been great if I could have done it the way that Arnold Hano did it.
4: <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> well, thank you. That's very sweet. Um, my, mine, mine had no history behind it. You had a little history behind yours, so so you could have that sort of feeling. I just was a fan and am a fan, and I. Thought I'd talk about that. The, the fact that Willie Mays did what he did uh, added to it, but I think I was going to write that book anyway.
0: Yeah, yeah. It certainly reads that way. I mean, you, you pour yourself into the book. I try to stay out of my book uh, for better or for worse, probably for uh-huh. better. Uh, but the very fact of your presence in your book is what brings it to life, I think.
4: Mm-hmm. Well, it, it, it's nice. Uh, uh, I think it was part of that new journalism where, where, where journalists, for some. For some reason, some time, decided to thrust themselves into the action of the piece they were writing, and uh, here was the case where I, I, I totally did that, and so it was it was part of what was happening then around me. Uh, Bill Hines was writing that kind of stuff; uh, other people were writing it, and so I just latched onto the that style without giving it any thought. It, it became natural to me.
2: And one of the challenges of the book about a single game is the problem of play by play, you have to describe the action, but you don't want to get too bogged down in saying so and so did this, and then so and so did that. And I'd be interested in hearing how any of you approach that problem of making play by play palatable and weaving it into your narrative and your broader observations about baseball. But Dan, I I guess I'll direct that to you.
0: Well, I think I failed at that. Uh, see <laughs> My book is an endless digression or an endless series of digressions in which uh, it's a, the polite way of saying it, or if I were showing off, would say, uh, you, what you see on the field is the tip of the iceberg. And I was writing about the nine-tenths that you don't see. How did everybody get there? What, how were strategies developed? What was the history of baseball in Milwaukee? You know, what in Earl Weaver's career, you know, qualified him to to be a, you know, to win three pennants in a row and, and, and such. This this was my opportunity as a fan to learn everything I didn't know about baseball, to go deeply into it, to have access to the players and, and staff and and the, the front office and really get to know it. So the, the, the game itself is really, it's a framework or almost an excuse to hang the rest of it on it. So I, I'm going to tell a story on myself. I'll try to make it brief. I finished the book and turned it into my publisher and my agent at the same time. And they both liked it very much. And then, uh, we, I a a couple of friends read it and my editor and I worked on it some, and it's going through the publishing process, which is, uh, both, uh, uh, well, as, as you know, as well, Ben, but, but you know, that, that um, Robin, Arnold do know. It's a long and arduous process. Mm-hmm. And when the copy editor began to work on it after two days, he, Went to my editor, who then called me and said, "You left out the bottom of the fifth. <laughs> <laughs> and I had gotten, <laughs> I had gotten so oh, lost I love it. in what I think is interesting stuff. I, I mean, I think the book is pretty good, but really, I had dug, I, I had gotten so far below that iceberg, I was drowning in it. I think, and then pulled myself out.
4: Uh-huh. Uh huh. You yeah, know, it, it, it's funny because. Uh, when you talk about history and things like that, my history was uh, what, what subway should I take to the ball game? You know, Ooh. things like things like that. Uh, uh, mine was so natural that that it it seems it, it seems it probably was effortless just to do. With it. The book took me only uh, maybe three weeks to write, uh, <laughs> and and uh, you know, and when I finished as a book and I gave it to Sterling Lord, my agent. Uh, he was very excited about it, and he said he knew exactly who was going to publish it. Hiram Hayden at Crown Books was going to publish it. He knew that, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Well, Hiram Hayden said to us when we met with him, I can't do this book. I don't know how to sell it. Where do I sell it? And I, being a wise ass, I said, in a bookstore. <laughs> he was very gentle with me. Uh, he said, but where? If I put it in with the sports books, that's where we publish Books uh, by that daddies buy for their 14 year old sons, and this is not that book. And he said, I, c- I just cannot sell this book. And so uh, that changed the whole, the whole idea of, it. gosh, this is going to be the book that Crown Publishers was, was going to publish and, and I'd be famous. Uh, uh, instead, it went a second round to uh, Thomas Fleming at, that at his publishing house that was famous only because it also published Collier's magazine. And the guy, the, the editor there said, how do I illustrate this? And I said, gee, I don't know. I, I'd, I'd help illustrate a a book at Bantam Books some years back. Uh, I liked the guy who did the illustration. Should I call him? Yeah, call him. So I called him and he became the illustrator. It was stuff like that. It was easy and, and when I was finished with it all, I was finished with it. I, I, this book was now you know, gone and done. And In fact, when it came out the first week in August, Bonnie and I were in a car driving out of New York City for good, driving to some other place where we would live. We did not know where that was going to be. And so I, I didn't have the, the little bit of fame. Uh, uh, I must say I appreciate what the editor at the Herald, Herald Tribune did He had read that I was able to call balls and strikes from 500 feet away, and so he went to the game, to a game, and he sat where about I sat, and he found out, yes, you can do that. So that was kind of flattering. Anyway, I didn't have, since mine was the first, and I was not thinking in those terms, I had nothing to lose. Just just, just play around with it and do it and let it go, which is what I did.
3: Well, I think that um, Arnold had the luxury of not, needing to be particularly digressive. His book was shorter and about a far more interesting game, which I think is one of the reasons why it's endured for as long as as it has. I ran into the same issue that that I think that, that Dan did, where the digressions sort of led could lead one so far from the actual narrative of the game, however unimportant it was, that it could become awkward. And I know that when I sent chapters to various people, various friends, before I sent it to my editor, one of my friends said, well, this doesn't really work, but I, can, I know how to fix it. And I knew what he meant. He, What he meant was that he couldn't follow the game action. So I went back through the entire book trying to add little details and make it a little more less awkward. But really, all my book is, is this guy grounded out, oh, and here's something else I'm thinking about for the next three or four pages. And you have to figure out whatever it is, 50 different ways to make that transition, which was a bit of a challenge. But ultimately, you have to do it.
4: I had i had one break. Uh uh, I had gotten along pretty well with Willie Mays back then, from from the time he came in, in, in uh, 51, uh writing about him. And and uh, he liked that, and so he sort of liked me. Uh, and I was able to ask him, this is actually after the book was published, because uh, I noticed that when Vic Wirth hit that ball that Mays was going to catch, Mays whirled almost immediately and headed for where the, he... He he wanted to go. I said to him, I said, how do do you do that? He said, I don't know. He said, I heard the crack of the bat and I knew two things. I knew exactly where that ball was going to end up and I knew I would catch it. And now that made life, I'd already written about it, but that that sort of guaranteed something I had written. And uh, uh, it was nice to hear it from him. The instinct of a baseball player and a good baseball player or a good athlete, is so far from removed from my own life. I mean, to, to to hear the crack of the bat and to know exactly those two things, it's
1: impossible.
4: You can't, you, that cannot be, but it was and it was easy for him.
1: So in A Day in the Bleachers, Arnold wrote, It was becoming a terribly long game, played at a dragging pace, the tempo of baseball itself has slowed down. And elsewhere in the book, he mentioned how long players were taking between pitches and wrote, ball games last much longer than they did in the old days. Of course, that was a 10-inning World Series game played in 3 hours and 11 minutes, which would seem pretty brisk to us today. Uh, In 2019, the average regular season game took 3 hours and 10 minutes to play. Uh, it's true that in 54, games had gotten about a half an hour longer compared to when Arnold first started going to games, but it's also true that they've gotten more than another half hour longer since then. And Rob, I'm wondering, uh, how do you think that's affected the spectator experience? And since we often hear that there's so much great writing about baseball because the game allows for quiet and contemplation and observation, can that slow pace actually be a benefit to a writer?
3: Well, I'm not sure if it's a benefit to a writer, I do think that obviously the the chance to have a conversation is, is greater if there's more time between events. But I, I, look, I think you could, there's plenty of time between plays in the NFL as well. Plenty. And yet yeah, we don't the, have the, the same the, the huddle, the, the old yes. huddle doesn't exist anymore, but the huddle is like a, a conference. Right, exactly. And so there's really, I, I've always sort of thought that was not necessarily why baseball was more interesting to write about. I think it's more the case that interesting people have tended to be baseball fans um, historically. And also baseball was obviously the sport for many decades. And it's right. relatively recently, the 1960s, essentially, that that uh, baseball was essentially dethroned, at least in, in some ways. So, no, I don't think that a four-hour game means we're going to get better baseball writing. That's, that's sort of the logical uh, conclusion one might draw, and I don't think it's true. Uh huh. I agree. Some of the
4: very best writing goes way back, and uh, you know, uh, write good. Good writers write well, and and we have some good writers writing about baseball before I was born. So, uh, I th- yeah, yeah
0: I, I think it's also you know worth, worth pointing out that the extended game today, if we take those pauses or those uh, uh, those gaps in the game where there's no action, they are filled with active scoreboards and music and in oh, some stadiums so awful, waves and awful,
4: awful. All, all these
0: things that I'm sure all of us on this on this, uh, in this conversation can't bear when I go back to the games that I saw as, the, uh, as a teenager in the early 1960s early middle 1960s games that took you know an hour and 45 minutes there was plenty of time to contemplate because there was nothing going on during those contemplative moments. Uh, the pause between pitches was all yours. There was nothing interrupting it. And that gave plenty of time for introspection and reflection.
2: Yeah. Arnold, I, I have a question about that for you. In A Day in the Bleachers, you wrote about how fans had begun to bring radios to the games, and you lamented that some people in the stands were paying more attention to accounts of the games than the games themselves. And so you wrote, when portable television becomes the rage, grim thought though it may be, they will pack their little sets to the ballparks and glue their eyes to the television screen, quietly cursing the sunlight all around them that is making their reception so dim. Someday we will have <laughs> ball games played in quiet studios and heavyweight championship prize fights fought before the three officials, the engineers and cameramen, and no one else. And that seems pretty prescient in the age of smartphones and also now Uh social distancing. And I'm wondering if you could take us back to a time before all of that. So you started going to games in 1926, which was before video screens, before transistor radios, before music piped over the PA system, even before beer vendors, because Prohibition was on at that time. So what were you able to hear then? And that you can't hear now at a ball game, and, and how is the experience of going to a game different?
4: Well, well, what I miss about the ball games today is the fielding practice. I love going early to the ballpark just to watch Travis Jackson throw his his, his rifle shots to Bill Terry uh, before the game, and then, and 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 Jojo Moore in, in left field would be throwing to the plate, and they had the A batter standing there and calling balls and strikes on his his throws from the outfield to the the, uh, catcher. Uh, All that stuff, I I found that stuff fascinating. And uh, when I said to some friend who wanted to take me to a game, uh, an Angels game, I said, let's go early so we can see fielding practice. He didn't say a word to me. There was no fielding practice. A couple guys came out, tossed the ball around, but there was no. No, no fielding practice, and I miss that. I, I miss lots of things. I miss seeing a, a manager like McGraw standing there coaching the third base uh, with his hands on his hips. I, I, I miss the involvement of 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 ball players and what it was they were doing. It bothers me today that a manager can sit in home sit in the dugout and call the, the next pitch for his pitcher. Uh, I, I like the game to be returned to the players more than it is, and, and, and you know I, I'm, I'm rambling now. But there's the, the stuff about the game today that that bothers me. Uh, the length of it. I, I have I have a friend who, who who keeps scorecards of of very very old ball games. He had a scorecard of a St. Louis Browns doubleheader against the Yankees back when. Each game was decided by a one-nothing score, uh, and each game took about 55 minutes to be played. And the crowd, the audience, was 2,000 people out in St. Louis to watch the the Browns and the Yankees. Uh, all, all that, all that stuff is fascinating, uh, and that's it's, it's part of my history. Uh, I, you can't take away from me that I saw Mel Ott when he was just a kid. Uh, playing baseball in the major leagues, things of that nature.
1: So I want to think about narrative for a moment in the game that Uh, Arnold wrote about Cleveland starter Bob Lemon not only pitched into extra innings, but also hit for himself in the top of the 10th with two outs and two on. And I know that Lemon was a very good hitter by pitcher standards, especially earlier in his career, Uh, but it's practically impossible to imagine that same scenario playing out today. Uh, But it did allow Arnold to have a consistent character of a pitcher who was present for the entire game, which enabled him to write toward the end On the mound was a tired, very courageous gentleman who had gone to the limit of his strength and resources and, like other courageous gentlemen, would go a little farther. In the game that you wrote about, Rob, 12 pitchers appeared. And so I'm wondering if, for narrative purposes, would you rather have had a single pitcher who could serve as a protagonist or did the constant cycling through of pitchers actually give you more material to work with?
4: I'll tell you, the the greatest day of pitching in all of baseball in its whole history took place on, December, on in, uh, July 3rd, 1933. Uh, Carl Hubbell went in against Tex Carlton. Each of them had a no-hitter behind them. That game went 18 innings. And the Giants won it 1-0 won uh, against the relief pitcher Papa, uh, Papa Haynes, I guess his name was, who also pitched a no-hitter. And that was, it turns out, the first game of a doubleheader. And Roy Palmerly went up against Dizzy Dean in the second game and beat Dean one nothing, striking out 14 Cardinals in the process. Now one nothing, one nothing, 27 innings, and the catch of Gus Mancuso caught the entire game for the Giants. Now these are things that just don't happen anymore. You know, Nolan Ryan throws through 200 pitches in a game, uh, but nobody today pitches 100 games, 100 pitches. Because his arm is going to fall off at 101. Uh, he knows it. Everybody else knows it. So out he comes after five or six innings, and that's that's a pity. Uh, I, I I like the longevity of of Hubble going 18 innings, giving up uh, uh, six hits uh, uh, in the 18 innings, and the, didn't walk anybody in the 18 innings. You know, stuff like that sticks with me. Uh, it's this it's, it has it has history and it has it has kind of music. It, it's beautiful.
3: Well, and I would say that um, I would much rather have have had what Dan had, which is a couple of starters and a few relief pitchers. Because when you've got six or seven or eight or nine pitching changes, it the theme of oh look how many relief pitchers there are these days that gets old real real fast. So <laughs> yeah. I had a couple of different <laughs> thing to say about each one of of the relief pitchers that entered the game. And I think I hit most of them, but it did get to be really too many. And, you know, I I go on and on in the book about how it's not great for the game to have so many pitching changes, especially toward the end of the book. I talk about that a lot, but I wish I wouldn't have had to talk about it because I think it's an unfortunate part of the game today.
0: All I wanted in my game was to get Raleigh Fingers into it. Um, I, had spent, I had spent a lot of time with Fingers while I was reporting the book, and he was such an interesting character for so many reasons. And I, and I did have this terrible fear because I, I was stuck. It had to be that day for reasons we don't need to go into but i had that game on, on that particular june 10th had to be the one that i was writing about and if the uh brewers had you know really collapsed early or if they were running away with it and there was no fingers i would have to figure, how the hell do i get this guy into the book but yeah. <laughs> uh, he, he, he he made it possible for me
4: yeah uh, uh, listen I, I i love relief pitches i i loved Hoyt Wilhelm and uh, uh, and the guy on the, on the Yankees, Murphy, I think his name was, who left the goal. I, I win 20 games because, uh, Murphy saves me from the seventh inning on. So, uh, you know, that, that that's important stuff. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking of the guy who pitched that one, well, two and one count, pitched to, to Vic Wertz And, and Vic Wertz is that ball. And, and that guy, that pitcher was out of the game. Uh, somebody went and somebody once said, well, he said, he probably said to Dorosha on his way out. Well, I got my man out, <laughs> and so I asked him about that, and he said, "If I had said that, Dorosha would have beaten me to a pulp." <laughs> uh, I said, st- "I said it to him the following season in spring training, and I, I was allowed to
2: get away with that as a joke." Right? Yeah, Don Little.
4: But, yeah, but really pitching is is, is wonderful. It's, I you know I, I'm a sucker for, for for the game, the changes. Are, are great the changes that I don't like are the noise and the music and the scoreboard exploding and and I went to a game an Angels game a friend had tickets uh, season tickets and Bonnie and I went there to a game uh, and in the seventh inning the the waiter came up and said dessert is being served and so we went out into the hallway where they had a, a line of desserts. And this this was more important than watching the ball game, apparently. And to me, that's not so. <laughs> to me, the game is the game, and that's the entertainment. It's yep. not. It's not all oh, this other foolish stuff. And one thing I admired about Vin Scully, after Jerry Doggett had left, he never broadcast with another man in the booth. Mm-hmm. It was always Vin Scully doing it himself. Yeah. <laughs>
0: If I could add, add, add something about this, about Arnold's absolutely correct notion that the game is the important thing. The very first game that I covered as a journalist was a spring training game in Fort Lauderdale when the Yankees were playing there. And I was in the press, the very small press box. And I guess I can say his name, Maury Allen, very nice guy from the New York Post was sitting at my right. I was writing for the New York Times Magazine. And Allen couldn't have been nicer to me, you know, he's, you know, showing me the ropes. And I was so excited to be there at my, you know, covering a game <laughs> in the press box. And I, you know, I, I said to him, man, you have the luckiest life. You get to spend all this time, just you know, with baseball. You get to, you know, to to, to eat and sleep and live live baseball. And and he said. Yeah, I like everything about it except for the goddamn games, and he got up and walked out.
2: (laughs) There are
4: people like that.
2: (laughs) All right. Well, we just have a a few more here, and then we will let you get on with your days. Uh, Arnold, we have access to really great statistics today that tell us things about players from earlier eras that people may not have even realized at the time, but there's still something to be said for seeing players in person. And you saw so many legendary players that most of us have only ever gotten glimpses of in, in black and white clips So, you know, Ruth and Gehrig and DiMaggio And Jimmy Fox and Melotte Who you mentioned and Carl Hubble and on and on And, and, and Babe Ruth Yes, yes. so I want to ask you uh, What was it like to watch and even meet Babe Ruth and and second I wonder whether any other great players come to mind Who were even more impressive in person Than they are when we read about them Or, or only look at their numbers years after the fact
4: Well, well, the, the one Who leaps to my mind was Hack Wilson Who, who was one of the great hitters in the National League, who, who approached the the magical sixty home runs one year, I think he had fifty six, fifty eight, something like that. Uh, and he was a short, stubby guy. He did, you know, you don't see guys looking like that anymore. And uh, I went to a game, sitting in the bleachers, and watching Hack Wilson being run all over the field because the Giants were hitting line shots all over the place. And when the game was over, we, we a whole bunch of us kids waited in the you know, outside uh, and then Hack Wilson and the, and the Cardinals came out and uh, we jeered him and we said, oh, how'd you like it when Lindstrom hit that ball over your head and blah, blah, blah. And he stood there taking it all, taking it all, taking it all. And finally I went up to him and I said, Hack, will you sign my scorecard? And he stared at me as though he was going to kill me and grabbed my pencil and he signed and every kid there had Hack had Wilson signed his, his <laughs> scorecards. It, it, was, it, it was just a, a, one of those lovely moments with, with a great ball player uh, in one of his worst days. It was just wonderful.
2: Yeah. And what are your memories of Babe Ruth, who I think you briefly encountered, as you mention in the book?
4: Well, he loved us. So we loved him. He loved kids. He just loved kids. And the kids loved them back. And I went, when you come out of the seventh inning for Sam Bird or whoever else in to be playing defense, uh, we would yell, we want the Bay, we want the base!" We knew we couldn't go back in. We knew enough the, about the rules, but that's the way we felt. We wanted the Bay, we wanted the Bay. It, it, was, it was just wonderful. And then seeing him pitch the last day of the 1933 season when the Yankees were out of it, My father came into the kitchen when my brother and I were doing the dishes and said, boys, we're going to go to the stadium tomorrow, but Babe is going to pitch. And we saw Babe Ruth pitch. And I said, he had a home run, and he pitched nine innings, and he beat the Red Sox. So it it was all legendary. It was was beautiful just to see all that stuff. So when I saw him crossing the street four or five days later, I ran up to him. I said, Babe, I saw you pitch that game. Yeah, kid? How... Uh, I said, how come you didn't strike out anybody? And uh, he laughed. He said, I wanted those eight palookas behind me to earn their keep. And his <laughs> wife rolled her eyes. <laughs> you know, these, these things stay with you. It's, uh, it's, 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 it's part of my life, not part of my history. It's part of my life itself.
1: So during national crises like the one that we're facing now, I think baseball gets um, a sort of grim reality check in terms of its relative importance, but it's also a tremendous source of solace for many. And we're looking forward to baseball's return whenever that ends up being, but we also have a lot on our minds, whether it's the pandemic or the economy or in some cases, friends and loved ones who we've lost or friends and loved ones of those we know who have been lost to this and Arnold, I hope you'll forgive a personal question, but about 10 years before you wrote A Day in the Bleachers, you lost your brother in World War II, and you saw action in the Pacific yourself. And I'm wondering if baseball was a comfort to you in the immediate aftermath of that experience, or if it took time for your interest in the sport to return.
4: It was, e- it was even part of my experience. Uh, uh, Joe DiMaggio and, uh, and the team came to Hawaii when we were in training there, and, and, and Sam Jones... Was pitching and Jones struck him out once and Dimaggio single the next time. You know, it was all part of part of life. Uh, I I I took upon myself to write about everything that was happening in the outside world while I was in the service. Uh, I don't know who, any other combat soldier did that. Maybe somebody did, but I did, it and we published it with a mammograph, mammograph newspaper uh, and. Uh, Talk about this young Stan Musial hitting this uh, all these uh, base hits at, at, at this age and things like that. Uh, so, so it, it's, baseball was part of my was part of my life. When I before a game uh, or after a game, when, when my brother and I would run on the field, I stood on the mound and I was striking out Lou Gehrig with
2: my screwballs. It was just wonderful. <laughs> yeah. And lastly, for Dan or or anyone else who wants to jump in, we're facing the prospect of a season played without fans in the stands, if we see a season at all. And I think we'd all rather have a a strange version of baseball than no baseball at all. But what do you think we would lose without that communal experience of going to games? And and what do you most miss about going to games?
0: Well, obviously, we would lose that, but we would gain so much more. And I am really hopeful That it becomes possible even if there are no fans in the stands and uh, just as long as they don't do fake laugh tracks or applause (laughs) tracks on it um my son is a physician he's a doctor on the front lines during the crisis in tacoma washington and i when when this began and he was under great deal of stress i would be writing to ask him how is he doing he's seeing a lot of patients who have it uh is he afraid how's his family and he wrote back to me he said Really, Dad. During the day, I can't bear it. The only thing I want you to write to me about is baseball, and that having baseball, as you know, as Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, knew so well when he wrote the Green Light letter uh, in 1942, it's an essential thing for us. And and having a distraction of that nature at a time of such horror and sorrow, I just miss it terribly, and I'm sure we all do.
3: Well, I I would add to that because I've I've been a little bit Frustrated isn't quite the right word, but I don't quite understand the perspective which I've seen that we somehow shouldn't be thinking about baseball until everything's great again, everything's perfect again. Now, granted, I'm biased because I'm the commissioner of a baseball league here in the Pacific Northwest, up in the corner of the country with with Dan's son. But if we can somehow get X number of people into a ballpark in July or August and they're enjoying life for two and a half, three hours and we can do it safely... Or, or near as safely as possible, safely to the point where people want to do it. Why would we not try? I can't quite understand that perspective. I
2: I, I agree everything you said, Rob. Can you tell us a little bit about your decision-making process or how you have gone about trying to figure out how to preserve some semblance of baseball in the league this summer?
3: Well, we look at all the different contingencies. Really, I don't. I'm ultimately, I'm not the one making that decision. It's the, it's our twelve teams. Who are going to make that decision? And I, you know, there's a chance that different teams will make different decisions. Maybe in one county or city it's possible, and in one it's not. But uh, there's a great enthusiasm for playing some brand of baseball, and if that means that 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 some of our teams um, lose some money this summer, well, I think most of them are happy to do that because they they do realize that they play an important role in their communities, and they want to be there for not only their fans, but also the players who come every summer to become better baseball players. There's a whole various constituencies that have a real, a truly deep interest in us playing baseball every summer. And if we can somehow do that, again, in, in a, a way that's safe and provide basically the experience that we're used to, to providing, uh, then everyone wants to do it. So all we can do at this point is, is wait for 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 guidance from, our, from all the authorities and the the epidemiologists and all those people, but uh, we're still full speed ahead to have a season whenever that might happen.
2: All right. Well, we wish you luck with that. And we're so happy to have had all of you on here together. I've read so much of your work and admired so much of your work. And some of you have admired the work of of others of you. And so it was really great to get you together and have you talk to us and to each other. So thanks so much for your time. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, this has been a thrill. Thank you. And And thank thank you. you too. All right, well, thanks so much to Arnold and Dan and Rob. That was just a joy for me, and I hope for you. I just want to read a brief passage from A Day in the Bleachers that I think gets at what we all love about watching and going to games. This is in the fourth inning, right after Arnold wrote the phrase, a walk is as good as a hit, which inspired our discussion on the podcast earlier this week. He continues, the next batter was Doby, The woman in the red hat, a Dodger fan rooting against the hated Giants, although I rooted for the Dodgers against the Yankees in 1953, yelled, Hit it where you live, Larry. I knew that Dobie hailed from Patterson, New Jersey, and my calculations were that Patterson was in foul territory, almost directly behind the plate. I did not bother to mention this to her because I have long ago ceased trying to reason with Dodger fans. A man directly behind me, however, said, Hit the light tower in right field, Larry, and I felt I had to retort to this. I said, Hit the light tower at second base, Larry. I do not pretend that there is any sparkling wit in any of this byplay, But it is all part of the struggle, wherein we fans carry invisible bats and take invisible hitches at our belts, spit on our hands, and chew huge wads of tobacco. Though we are patently the watchers, we are really the participants, as the racing heart attests, the tight chest, the rushing blood hot in the temples that's what we miss right fandom might be illogical might be some remnant of our tribal based early histories but it's still something we enjoy and that vicarious thrill that we get from watching people play baseball who are really really good at it is something that we hate to be without and that i hope we will not be without for too much longer I think an episode like this With me and Meg in our 30s And Rob in his 50s And Dan in his 70s And Arnold in his 90s All of us bonded together by baseball Well, that's just the best, right? We've all connected over this thing That we all love That we've all experienced in different ways And we can come together to have this great conversation Even though we're separated by distance and time And everything else And I think you all know If you've been listening to this podcast for some time How much I enjoy cold-calling people like Arnold Who remember earlier eras in baseball history And just picking their brains And listening as they recount These incredible memories I mean Babe Ruth seems to me Like a figure from antiquity almost But to Arnold He's someone he talked to That's just living history So anytime that we can get Someone like Arnold on Or the late Ned Garver Or Johnny O'Brien Or more recently On our sign-stealing episode Eddie Robinson and Al Worthington I will always jump at that chance I was a history minor in college And I've always been interested in history But most of history You have to read about in books Occasionally though You can just call someone up who was there. I don't know if it's because I had older than average parents, but I never really felt that instinctive mistrust or scorn or even pity for previous generations that many young people feel. I always liked old movies and old music and old books and I guess old sports. It's not to say that people from previous generations didn't have their flaws, and in some ways they were much more flawed on the whole, but if you've made it to Arnold's age, you've amassed an incredible compendium of memories in your own head, and to be able to access that is just a treat. It's also nice to talk to someone like him and imagine ourselves at 98 being as sharp as Arnold Hano. I wish we all could be. If you'd like to learn more about Arnold's extraordinary life and career, and why wouldn't you, you can check out a documentary that was made about him that came out in 2015. It's called Hano: A Century in the Bleachers, and it's actually streaming on Amazon Prime, so I will link to that on the show page. And if you're looking for another weekend watch about baseball and history, I can also recommend A Secret Love, a documentary that came Came out on Netflix this week and it's about The 70 plus year love story between Pat Henschel and her girlfriend and Then wife Terry Donahue how they had to Hide and disguise their relationship And then eventually how they came out And Terry Donahue was a catcher and Utility player for the Peoria Red Wings Of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League for four seasons of Course the league made famous by a league Of their own so there's a lot of great Baseball content in the movie too and There's definitely crying in baseball When you watch this movie by the By the way, Arnold and his wife Bonnie, whom he mentioned a couple times in our interview, have also been married for almost 70 years. Yet another remarkable aspect of his life. So that will do it for today and for this week. Thanks, as always, for listening. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild, and the following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Christopher R. Gialoretto, Naticia Hutchins, Joshua Gailey, J.M., and Jeff Feng. Thanks to all of you. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectivelywild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Meg and Sam coming via email at podcastthefangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. If you're looking for reading material beyond A Day in the Bleachers and Nine Innings and Powerball, you can pick up a paperback copy of my book with Travis Sachik, The MVP Machine, How Baseball's New Nonconformists Are Using Data to Build Better Players. It includes a brand new afterword. And if you're free, this Friday, May 1st at 3 p.m. Eastern. Travis and I will be taking and answering questions live on a platform called Crowdcast that you can access online. I will link on the show page to where you can find that and submit some questions for us to answer. And We hope that you all have a wonderful weekend, and we will be back to talk to you early next week.
0: five hours, old car back home without gas, but with newly dented chrome, bed and I turn out the light dream of scalpers and bad seats all night. I so I could take the same trip the very next night to the baseball game So you can spill my beer or call me dumb And Give me the worst seat in the stadium Hit me on the head with a batted ball But don't take away my Bill Buckner doll Call me crazy, take down my name All's fair in and loving
2: Hi, Arnold. This is Ben. How are you? I'm okay. Uh, so far, uh, it
4: depends how you're going to grill me and drill me. We'll see how I am. <laughs> All right.
0: Hi, this hi, is man. Dan O'Krent. i very p- pleased to meet you, Arnold. I've admired you for most of my adult life. Oh, you you, you poor dear. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's been tough. <laughs> yeah. Ro- and Rob, it's nice to hi- nice to talk to you. I have admired both
3: Dan and Arnold for my entire adult life, and plus... And, and more so this is a thrill <laughs> uh, I, I'm going to have to sit, sit down to take care of all this
4: place uh, and in fact I think I'll hang up now because I'm ahead <laughs> <laughs>